Now, if you two don't mind, I'm going to bed before either one of you come up with another clever idea to get us killed. Or worse, expelled. She needs to sort out her priorities. You're a podcaster, Laura. <laughs> You're <a> wizard, Harry. <laughs> it's not when God him Leviosa, it's when God him Leviosa. Welcome to Film None of these quotes are from book three. True, but <laughs> yeah, that's this is the intro we had, and you know what? We're not gonna do it again. Yeah, we're sticking with it. All right, welcome to Film is Lit. My name is Laura, and I am the literature enthusiast expert. <laughs> nice. My name is Danny, and I'm the film expert, self appointed. This is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. We got a nostalgia pick here. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a great film. <laughs> we're going to we we've gotten a few questions about whether we were going to cover a Harry Potter film and honestly our first response was no because we kind of feel like these books and movies have been beaten to death. I mean, how much more can you say about Harry Potter that's not already out there? Am I right? Sure. <laughs> uh, however, we decided to go with the third one because we really like the directorial choice. <laughs> yeah, it might be my personal favorite. It, it's most people's favorite when you ask them to like rank the Harry Potter films, which we're going to do at the end of this episode. But I go back and forth between this film or Goblet of Fire. I have a nostalgic link to Goblet of Fire. I saw it when... 2006 I saw it I think when I was 13 and I personally like the story of Goblet the most however I think Prisoner of Azkaban is the more technically proficient film it, mm. it's clearly the best made film mm. yeah from an it's, acting a, standpoint, it's a fun one. from editing cinematography I think it kind of blows every other film out of the water but I still gravitate more towards Goblet of Fire, just a little bit more. I mean, they're neck and neck. Like mm -hmm. It depends on which one I've seen. Yeah. Uh, latest. But, yeah. So, Prisoner of Azkaban, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, the auteur. Yeah. I cannot wait to get into this book. Well, let's start with a little bit of background. Let's just get this out of the way. Number one, Prisoner of Azkaban came out in 1999, written by she who must not be named, considering the author is a transphobe. <laughs> Yeah, and just... so petty that when Stephen King came out against her statements and unequivocally said she's crazy, trans women are women, she went back like 10 years and deleted a tweet that he had tweeted about how great of a storyteller she was. Like, she is a petty little witch. Yeah. And we will not be using her name in this podcast because... You know, why use your platform in that way? I think, yeah, we're only going to address this once. Uh, by praising this story and her work, we're not endorsing her comments. Um, she did the worst thing you can do when you come out uh, as a transphobe is to double down on mm -hmm. her comments. You know what? If you're a transphobe, that sucks. But don't confirm it. Like, just lie to the public. especially Or if learn from it, right? But well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I hope you'd learn. But if she was at a point where she's not learning from it, and it's like, you're ahead of this franchise, either you can just lie to protect your own name and your own image, 
or you can double down and she doubled down. So yeah, we're not going to address it again. We're just going to say we love this story and that's that. Yeah, it's just such a bummer because one of the reasons I have such a hard time letting go of this story is, well, number one, I I wasn't targeted by her transphobic comments. And so it's tough because with Harry Potter, Danny and I grew up in the generation that literally grew up with these books coming yeah, out. Yeah, we like, about the same age as the... Uh... The main three, Harry, yeah, Ron, so, and Hermione as the book. Yeah. yeah, and we were in kindergarten when number three came out. And so I remember reading. I was already kind of a proficient reader. I, I already loved reading. And I remember my mom reading the first, second, and third to me. And then when the fourth one came out, I think she read about half of it. And then I was like, this is going too slow. <laughs> like, yeah. I need to read it for myself. So that's Harry Potter is what introduced me to my love of literature, but not only that, it also gave me a feeling of belonging, which I think is what a lot of people my age got out of these books. Because yes. I started this podcast with a quote that sounds very similar to things that I've said in the past. You're like, lying. I'd rather die than fail this test. Let, let's just get this out of the way. Laura is Hermione um, in all the best ways and worst. Yeah, and worst. Yeah, for multiple Halloweens, I dressed up as Hermione. I'm currently looking at the Harry Potter shrine that I have at my parents' house, which contains not only the hardback copies of the American versions that I purchased as a kid. It also contains an entire box set of the English versions. I have visited the Orlando version of the Harry Potter world when it opens, so I have my butterbeer mug and my quill and my <laughs> my wand and like just and a Marauder's Map. Like, I've got the memorabilia. You name it, I've seen it. I've got it. I I actually recently was going through some stuff at my parents' house that we were trying to get rid of, as you do during COVID. And I found chopsticks, like disposable chopsticks that probably came in a takeaway Chinese food order. And I had, in like first grade maybe, I had taken the chopsticks and colored them so that they looked darker and written W-O-N-D <laughs> to make sure everyone knew it was my wand. <laughs> And this is how I made a few friends at school. I was Hermione in our group, and we had a Harry, a Ginny, a Ron. Like, we had Neville. sort of our... You know what? I don't know if we had a Neville. But it was just this really small group of kids who were kind of on the outskirts of, you know, the group. And you're, we really found community in it. You didn't have a friend who was... Maybe hadn't hit puberty in <laughs> high school, and then that you come back from college break, and you're like, "Holy shit, they're they're hot." <laughs> well, this was this was in like second grade, first uh, oh, second grade. So, gotcha. yeah. <laughs> no, we were in in grade school. But you know, Harry Potter is just something that consistently brings me together with people. The first movie I saw in theaters was the first Harry Potter movie. Oh. Like, I have so many good memories with this franchise and I'm sure more will come to mind yeah. as we go through this movie. I also actually that reminds me I was also going to say that I've had two Harry Potter cast run-ins and the first one was a couple years ago before COVID. Danny and I took a couple friends to a show at the UCB Franklin and Domo Gleason 
sat behind us. Who is a Weasley. Who is Bill, right? Bill Weasley. He's also in a bunch of my other favorite films like Ex Machina and About Time. But I saw him in Hollywood. And then I saw, this is the big one, Alan Rickman at a Barnes and Noble at the promenade in Santa Monica when I was in like sixth grade. And I like, I like froze because I knew exactly who it was. Like I, I saw him and he was wearing like a suit jacket and jeans. And I just was like, oh my God, it's Snape. <laughs> I like froze and had like a panic attack. And then my mom came up on me and I was like under a full body bind curse. <laughs> and I was like, mom, I just saw Snape. <laughs> like that's like one of my number one favorite star sightings in los angeles so i wanted to share that up top because this this franchise just makes me feel like i belong somewhere yes. so especially the third one because with the hiring of lupin mm. it kind of shows a message of uh inclusivity and understanding other people's ailments or you know conditions mm-hmm. it's it's funny how she who must not be named wrote this and kind of, you know, a werewolf can be seen for an allegory for not feeling like you're in the right skin, like you're somebody else underneath. And for her to, yeah, <laughs> that's not just again. You talked about your backstory. Now, now it's my yeah. turn. It's funny that your mom read the first three to you growing up because that's exactly what my mom did. Yeah. I remember, I have vivid memories of reading all three books with her growing up. But yeah, my mom had the Harry Potter series. Uh, my dad had the great illustrated classic series that he read to me, which was kind of shortened, condensed versions of classic novels so mm. that kids could read. And there's illustrations like every third page. Yeah. So yeah. I remember my, those. They're yeah. like white with the red yep. print. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. Moby Dick, Treasure Island, Robin, Robinson Crusoe. I read those all with my dad. Yeah. All nautical themed now that I think about it. Anyways, <laughs> But yeah, I read the first three with my mom and those were a magical experience. And I saw all three, the first three movies with my mom. And I saw the first one with my friend Adam as well. Adam Mayhew, shout out. We were in first grade. And, yeah. yeah and, oh, now he's a groomsman. Yeah. Oh. And then Chamber of Secrets. I can't remember where I saw that with, but I remember my mom getting that DVD for me for Easter. And that's when DVDs first became a big thing like mm-hmm. in 2002 and I would watch I watched that movie probably a thousand times yeah you know those movies you get when you're younger and you just watch every day you can in the summer yeah, because, yeah. Harry Potter yeah. for me it was the same way and the Sorcerer's Stone too I, I watched that a bunch but Chamber of Secrets I have another nostalgic link to because I know that movie by heart I know a lot of people rank that one of the lowest mm-hmm. but I love it and I love the story too anyways I saw this movie in fourth grade, I believe, 2004 it came out, and I was too young to really know like about auteurs, auteur directors, you know, yeah. and filmmaking techniques. I didn't have the vocabulary to express how much I liked the movie. Like, I couldn't really tell, but I, I just knew, even at that young age, I'm like, something's different about <laughs> this one. The first two are great, but this one is like... Something is is happening here mm-hmm. that I hope to one day understand. And now when I'm older and you, you, you learn about film and, and film criticism, you can just see how well th- this movie is just a machine. 
it just moves and mm -hmm. moves. It's so well shot. Um, yeah, streamlines the book really well. Yes, yeah. very well. I I think that's... I, I like the book, but I think the middle portion lagged for me. Mm -hmm. I'll just mention that now. It, it kind of is a hangout book, mm -hmm. if you could say. There's plot in the beginning, and then most of the book is them hanging out in Hogwarts, dealing with their problems and the Quidditch tournament. And then the last third is just all action and plot mm -hmm. and time travel shenanigans. But I think this movie started my love for time travel movies. I, I love anything time travel. I made a time travel movie in college. That was my thesis. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm all about Alfonso Cuaron. I'm all about Harry Potter. And I'm all about this particular story. So that's my history with it. Nice. I love it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, let's get into some of the differences between the book and the movie. No giant squid in the movie. Yeah, they, you know, uh, that's a character that the movies cut out as well as Peeves the poltergeist. Yeah. Which I understand he's a minimal character, but he's such a fun character. And I kind of wish that that had been carried over. But they have so many ghost characters, I understand why they had to streamline. So I think a big difference is that Early in the movie, Harry sees a newspaper article with a photograph of the Weasley family in Egypt. Yes. Um, though it is never again mentioned, this is a very important plot point in the book, because while on an inspection of Azkaban, the Minister of Magic had a copy of that paper and gave it to Sirius Black, who recognized Peter Pettigrew disguised as a rat because the rat had... Missing a, a, toe. Missing yeah. toe. And in the movie, Sirius doesn't know that Peter Pettigrew is a rat until the end. And I think it's Harry It's Harry who points out that the rat is missing a couple fingers once they start talking. Yeah. Right, yeah. So this is a really good way of pointing out how the movie streamlines the book. Because I think... On rereading this, or actually, to be honest, I re-listened to this because the audiobooks are read by Jim Dale, who's an incredible audiobook reader. And honestly, yeah. I've, for as many times as I've read these books, I have listened to them because I just kind of keep them on in the background, like when I'm working, because I know the story so well, and his voice is kind of calming to me. But when I was re-listening to this for the podcast, that seemed a little unreal number one that the minister of magic would give a prisoner a newspaper <laughs> like yeah. i feel like that's like rule number one of prison given i've never been to prison but i feel like rule number one is that you don't give prisoners things because they can always make a shiv or like a weapon so i thought that was a little bit strange but then the other thing was that you can't see that you like you wouldn't be able to see a rat well enough to know that a toe was missing in a picture like yeah. that always that seemed like a little bit of a weird detail like a little too coincidental but when i watched the movie i was like this is smart because sirius escaped and wasn't necessarily trying to get after anyone he was just trying to like get out and i i like the natural progression of him and lupin learning because then it even raises the tension when lupin thinks that he's a murderer when he comes across him like that raises the tension at the at the climax of the movie when they're in the shrieking shack and then he sort of finally comes around and realizes like oh gotcha understood you're not <laughs> a murderer yeah. yeah that whole scene with the three men yeah Lincoln, Sirius 
and uh, Snape, I guess four men, and Peter Pettigrew. Peter Pettigrew. Yes, I love that scene because it's very dialogue heavy. It's four men shouting in a room. It's almost Shakespearean. Mm. And it takes a skilled director to pull that off Mm -hmm. because four men just shouting at each other is not exciting on its face. And they're pointing sticks at each other. (laughs) Yeah, they're just just yelling and it's thrilling in the movie because of the acting. I think all the adult performances are top-notch in this movie and that's Mm -hmm. a credit to the great directing. Keyword adult performances. Yes, Alfonso (laughs) Cuaron, he didn't have a choice to work with the younger actors and look, I don't want to make it seem like we're bullying Emma Watson because in our Perks of the Wallflower episode... And Little Women. Oh, and Little Women. Yeah, I know. Oh, I, did, I forgot about Little Women. <laughs> we come we, off as very aggressive. We come off as pretty aggressive towards Emma Watson. I, You know what? I'm sorry. She's not good in this. No, I mean, she's like, there, there are a lot of lines she, where you're she, like... Yeah, n- noticeably bad. I didn't realize that as a kid. I think as an adult, I'm kind of a little bit more jaded in looking out for that type of stuff. Not good. Daniel Radcliffe, he's actually pretty good in the first two films. I didn't think he was great either in mm. this. When he has to scream, it's not really convincing. He's like, he was that friend! Yeah. And, and the he killed them! Expelliarmus! <laughs> yeah. He, and he gets better. And so does Emma Watson, by the way. It's kind of crazy how Karan wasn't able to get a good performance out of her, being he's just such a master at directing. But yeah, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, not great. Funny enough, the strongest performance of the kids was Ron, probably the most annoying character. Uh, You know, yeah. And he, Rupert Grint, is actually pretty dang great. He doesn't have a big role in this movie because in The Chamber of Secrets, he was a part of the finale with Harry. Now in this movie, it's Hermione is a part of it. And I like how She Who Must Not Be Named included, she mixed it up between the books. Mm -hmm. A good even mix between the three of how the are able to participate. So the the kids aren't great. Uh, Malfoy, that actor, he's kind of not great. He was a good villain in Chamber of Secrets. He's not really... You know, I should say, in the book, he's super annoying. And in the book, he's just bullying Harry for the first half yeah. after Harry passes out from the Dementors. And it, it keeps on going back to just Draco making fun of Harry and dressing up as a Dementor and all this stuff. And after a while, it's kind of overkill. It's like, I get it. Can we move on? Well, it's kind of interesting, not to take away from your point, but I think the kids are meaner and the adults are more severe in the books. And I've always noticed that. And it's kind of shocking how Harry, like, at one point, Harry, like, chokes out Sirius Black in the book. Mm. And I've always found that very shocking because when you're growing up reading these, you you think that at, like, all points they're, like, 16. But then when you're reading them, you're like, Harry's, like, 13. Like, that wouldn't have happened. And I always wonder if that was an oversight by She Who Must Not Be Named or if it's, like, in the wizarding world because things like broken bones, broken noses, which happens, like, all the time people people are breaking their noses people are losing blood people are breaking bones i've always wondered if that in the wizarding world because it's so much easier to heal people and to fix things if severity is just heightened i don't know in like actions or attitudes because it's almost like there are lower stakes to like 
hurting other people. Yeah. I don't know, but it seems very strange that Harry sometimes will just like yell at a teacher and they're like, all they do is like send him out. Or like, well, he is the chosen one. <laughs> I know, <laughs> what right? What are we going to do? <laughs> but, but it's weird. Like yeah. it's very strange to listen to a 12 year old student choking out a teacher or something like choking out an adult i've always found that kind of strange so i think that they on purpose just for palatability they reduce that severity a little bit for for the movies yeah so while it was unfortunate to rewatch this movie years later and to be like oh wow these kids aren't cutting it the adults, I mean, let's go to fan favorite Remus Lupin. Oh, yeah. Played by the wonderful David Thewlis, who we, we talked about in... Yes. Um, I'm thinking of Ending Things episode. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's... He's amazing. Incredible actor. I kind of wish he was in more of the franchise, yeah. to be honest, especially in the movies, because David Thewlis is, brings such life to that character. And, and we want more of him because ultimately, obviously, spoilers alert, but we lose him in the last book. So right. it's, it's such a bummer we don't get more of him. Yeah, and we're not talking about uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2, but I think his death was a little... It's like off screen. Yeah, yeah just completely. And he's barely in that movie too. And yeah, it, it's a shame that such a great actor and character aren't in the books and movies more. But David Thewlis, he comes in instantly likable, both yeah. in how he acts and, and what and the training he gives to Harry. Yeah. His training area, that set was actually the set for Dumbledore's office in the last movie. I feel like yeah. I could tell that because of all the things in the background. Right, Karan uh, repurposed that for Smart. the training, and then he added a bunch of floating you know, gizmos and gadgets. Well, my favorite set piece in there are the spine, the vertebra candles. I've oh, literally... Yeah always loved those like if those are out online to purchase someone dm me and tell me because i want those yeah this movie was nominated for best art direction that was before it was called production design didn't win fun fact the harry potter franchise zero oscars to its name has wow. been nominated mostly for visual effects and production design, costume design. What about score? Because this is yeah, didn't like win. John Williams. John Williams never won. Nails for, it again. Yeah, this was actually the last John Williams scored Harry Potter movie. Azkaban. Oh, yeah. His themes went on for the rest of the film, sure. but Williams himself did not score yeah. the rest of the films. Yeah, so that's just little... busy doing other incredible. <laughs> Busy scoring, yeah, the Spielberg movies. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, his theme, which is iconic, everyone knows it, even if you haven't seen a Harry Potter movie. This was one of the first things I learned when I was taking piano, you know, in grade school. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, in the book, it is mentioned that the werewolf resembles a normal wolf in appearance, save for a few distinguishing traits. Not the case for the movie. I love this change. As Lupin, in his werewolf form, is shown having a gaunt, humanoid, hairless appearance. He kind of looks like a coyote, in a way, like who stands up on his hind legs. Yeah, like an emaciated coyote. Yeah, clearly hungry and anemic, you know, yeah. There's a Native American, I believe it's Algonquin creature, called a Wendigo. I don't know if anyone's familiar with the outline of that sort of. Yeah, it's in like Pet Cemetery. It's also a uh, Norwegian creature as oh, well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's an emaciated creature 
where and the legend goes that it's sort of a yeah like a nordic like yeah. it is hungry and so it hunts during the winter but the more it eats the more it gets hungry it's like a gluttonous mm-hmm. creature and it looks the outline of that looks very similar to the image in harry potter yeah, I, I really like that it's really intense and scary for yeah kids it movie. yeah we should say this movie for a kid's movie very intense. It's kind of, it's nuts how this movie is still PG. Once we get to Goblet of Fire, then the franchise moves to PG-13. Yeah. And I will, yeah. still PG. And you can tell, even from the first frame, you can tell that something is different mm-hmm. about the image, the story you're watching. The image is darker. The camera is moving and it's handheld and it's dynamic and i think something that christopher columbus who is the director of the first two films he did this really well his movies were full of adventure and the camera was always moving but it, like on dollies right and this is handheld mm. which which adds kind of a more raw feel to it and it is harder to pull off but you can just tell the the effects are better the, the yeah lighting, the effects it, it's darker yeah. and Azkaban, in both the books and the movies, it marks a transition for Harry Potter from perilous adventure stories for children to increasingly dark and nuanced treatments of of character. Yeah, I agree. I think that, to be honest, I didn't do a lot of research into this book because Harry Potter is not, I guess for some context, my other favorite YA or young adult literature series is Series of Unfortunate Events. And I think that there's a lot deeper themes in those books. And I think that now as an adult, I actually favor those just because I think their themes are darker and more well-realized. But with Harry Potter, I would say that one of the deeper themes throughout the book is sort of being able to love people for who they are rather than how they present themselves or, yeah. you know, how they're stereotypes. And so the fact that this deals with Harry overcoming what society and especially the Ministry of Magic has churned out propaganda to make Sirius Black look like this murderer, because to be honest, like, they're not even that sure. <laughs> like, I, there, yeah, it's, this book even contains commentary of yeah. like, wrongly incarcerated Uh, Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting. And so, like, I think if anything, as an adult, if you're trying to, like, mine this book for something deeper than just an adventure story, I think that's what you come out of this with. But the interesting thing is that this is one of the only books where Harry doesn't encounter Voldemort really at all. Yeah. He's not in this. And that's that's true for the books and the movies. Like, the third one, Voldemort is just kind of absent, other than the fact that He's mentioned because Peter Pettigrew goes back to him. But I like that Harry has to overcome the fact that, like, the wizarding government has put out so much propaganda when they weren't even able to... This is actually something that's intrigued me, that the wizarding government will incarcerate people even though they have that spell that can recreate the last spell that a wand cast. Mm-hmm. But they weren't able to do that for serious? Yeah. Like, huh. maybe I'm missing something because maybe, like, Peter Pettigrew had Sirius's wand when he blew up the street where he murdered those people and turned into a rat. But, like, that always made me kind of. I, I was like, is that a plot hole? Yeah. Like, that I, always made me kind of weirded out I because, it, yeah. Well, we'll get to the plot. I mean, I think we have 
a different take on the time turner sequence and yeah. whether or not that's a plot hole. Yeah. Um, but I guess just to wrap up my thought, I just, I like that the main villain in the Harry Potter series, which is Voldemort, does not come into the book, but this is where the series gets a lot darker. Right. And I think it is because Harry's bombarded with all of this propaganda, but he says, no, like, I know the truth, and now I have the strength to fly in the face of that truth. Because I think that's where he starts to trust himself. Maybe a little too much. Harry can be a brat. <laughs> and he can be wrong. But, for example, like, later in the books, I think it's in Order of the Phoenix, he does the same thing with Malfoy. Like, he knows that Malfoy is up to no good. Nobody believes him. But Harry goes about proving that he's the one who's getting Death Eaters into the castle. So right. I think this is where Harry learns to, like, trust his gut. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes this movie the most standalone movie in the entire franchise. You can watch this anytime, whether it be in a marathon or not. Whereas the other movies, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. Once you get to Order of the Phoenix, you kind of can't, you don't watch those in standalone, or at least I don't. I have no really desire to watch those latter movies unless I'm doing a marathon. They're not as good to you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the reason Goblet of Fire is at number one for me is because we finally get to see Voldemort in the flesh. And yeah. And that scene, my gosh, I remember yeah. seeing that at 13 after Pettigrew had just murdered Cedric Diggory. Yeah. And you're just like, whoa, shit is getting real. And shit gets real in Azkaban, but... It's both a strength and a weakness how it has nothing to do with Voldemort because you can watch it on its own. It's just a fun movie, a little contained movie. I mean, the time travel sequence is a loop. Like, it literally is a contained story. That's what I love about it's a, that, yeah. It's a contained story within a contained story. But at the same time, it works as part of the franchise because Peter Pettigrew is pretty essential to the overall plot. I mean, he's Vol he brings Voldemort back. He he's kills... the reason Harry's parents are dead. Yeah. Again, strength and a weakness. The strength is that the movie can stand alone, but it also is still essential. Uh, weakness is, is maybe if this movie is removed, it probably doesn't affect the franchise too much, but it, it still affects a little bit. So, yeah, I... Man, Peter Pettigrew, that twist, reading it, I'll give credit to the author here. Yeah. When my mom was reading that, I remember at that young age being like, read me the actual story because you're lying to me. There's no there's no <laughs> way that, because, you know, I just thought my mom was just making up this twist because I, I love twists at that age. I just watched Empire Strikes Back. My parents <laughs> showed me that. And I just thought, I thought every movie had a big twist and every story did. And then... Coincidentally, we read that story next. That, what a great reveal. I, I know. Well, and this is this is why I keep coming back to this series. Because the more you know about the end of the series, the more you understand in the beginning. And I, the ability to nest these ideas is just mind-blowing to me. Because you're totally right. This is book three. And we find out how Harry Potter's parents died yeah. and how that came about. Like, that is brilliant. That is so brilliant. And not only that, but we start to find out about Horcruxes. Not even knowing it. Yeah. Not even yeah. knowing it. And, like, if you keep going further and further back, like, Harry finds out, Harry finds out he's a parcel mouth in book two. We don't find out that that's important until, like, book 
five. Oh, he also destroys uh, Horcrux in book, in book two. one. No, two. The oh, two. Tom right, Riddles. right, right, yeah. right. Tom's diary. Yeah. And so that kind of story nesting yeah, is pretty insane. I, I don't know if She Who Must Not Be Named just got lucky. <laughs> like, maybe, but I've heard that she plotted it out well, years in advance. But I, I think, mean, I think it's kind of half and half because. Recently, with the Fantastic Beasts series, she's been making, like, retcons to the whole thing. Well, right, like, yeah. Door, and she's like, stupid. no, it was always part of the plan. And you're like... No, it wasn't. Stop, stop lying, lying you piece of witch. And I think, well, we can get to the time turner here. So, mm. I love time travel, as I said before. The sequence in the movie is incredible. I, I think it's so fun to realize, like, oh, they were the ones who were interacting with themselves. And it should be mentioned in the book... Hermione makes a point that they cannot interact with their past selves at all. Like, it'll be catastrophic. In the movie, they're, like, throwing shit at, at each other. And they're, right. like, right there near each other. Kind of for more a cinematic effect. But now we come to the topic of the time turner. Now, as a kid, I remember thinking, oh, if wizards have the time turner, wizards and witches... Obviously, there must be a limit to it because they would just go back and save Harry's parents from dying. But then years later, She Who Must Not Be Named comes out with the the Cursed Child stage play, mm -hmm. which is about them going back and saving Cedric Diggory. Okay, so I'll be up front. I've never read that. I, I, I don't know what that's about, so... Right. That sounds stupid because that's impossible. Right. So, and I have a reason why that would be impossible. So that actually right. is like very upsetting. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm just learning of this breaking news. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, even as a ten year old, I kind of came to the conclusion that the time turner had limits because otherwise right. everyone would use it. But the author has doubled down, just like she did with her <laughs> transphobic comments. On saying, like, no, and wrote a whole play where people go back infinity times. So it can be argued that your fate is sealed because when they go back, they don't actually change anything. Right. Because Buckbeak never died. Right. They think Buckbeak died, but they didn't. So you could argue, well, you know, the fate is set, destiny is fate. But then you get to a whole thing of how okay, if your destiny is sealed, then why have a time turner in the first place? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You could say that Buckbeak was always going to live because they always go back in time. Mm -hmm. But going back in time suggests that you can change your fate. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, definitely. I. So, yeah, l let's dig into that. Yeah, so number one, the reason I've always wanted a time turner purely was to take more classes honestly i saw that <laughs> time turner and i was like i was like you're you're kidding me right now i can take double classes <laughs> I can, like that to me like so the thing with the time turner is that number one we know right off the bat that it's a restricted piece of magic because hermione talks to mcgonagall and they have to apply to the ministry to have access to a time turner. So we know that time that time travel is at least restricted to like certain government approved activities. Mm -hmm. 
And it bo- it did bother me, though, the first time I was reading about, or I don't know, maybe not the first time, because I was, what, six when I was reading this book, or less than that, I don't know. But I was like, well, why not just go back and save people who had died? However, it's also explicitly said in Harry Potter that once someone is dead, you can't resurrect them. So I don't Okay, Cursed Child now that, like, makes me upset that that would have been... They literally say you cannot save people who have died. Yeah. That's why Sirius doesn't die, because if Sirius had been dementored, (laughs) if if he had received a dementor's kiss, then it wouldn't have mattered for them to go back in time, because no matter what, he would be dead. So that's why he couldn't die in that scene the first time we're moving, you know, forward in the singular timeline that's why he doesn't die and honestly i thought it was brilliant when i found out that especially in the movie the way they visualize this when the executioner brings the axe down and he's just buried it into a pumpkin because he's upset that buck beep is gone that was like what like that's crazy cool like that's why i think that this time loop is done so well it doesn't bother me so much that they do interact with each other the thing that really bothers me is that hermione and harry at like differing times in the book and movie like don't understand how time travel works it's like so stupid harry in the book is an idiot yeah he's like wait he's like wait you're telling me we're seeing each other from the past. It's like, yeah, Harry. Yeah, Harry. <laughs> you're, you traveled back in time. You're going to have to get yeah. used to that. And it's like, for Hermione to have to explain to him why he can't just barge into a room and see himself, like, yeah, that's important to know, right? Because, like, in Harry's mind, all he has to do is tell himself, like, oh, like, let's work together and, like, save this and, like, make this happen and stuff. So, like, setting that part up is smart. But in the book and the movie, I think, Harry, when he casts the Patronus, which this is really smart because it proves Hermione's point that your original self moving linearly through time, you're not going to know what to do if you saw yourself, quote unquote, in the future, your like future self that went back. Yeah. And that's proved when Harry thinks that the person who cast the Patronus was his father. Because in his brain, moving linearly, he's like, he doesn't know he's in the future. So that was really smart. But then he has to explain that to Hermione, who's been time traveling for an entire school term. And he's like, I wouldn't have known that I myself had cast the Patronus because I didn't know I was in the future. And he's like, does that make sense? And she's like, no. (laughs) And I'm like... Yes, it does, Hermione. Like, you've been doing this for an entire term. You know how time... You literally explained it to Harry, overly so, because he's an idiot. Wait a (laughs) minute. But you didn't get it. No one is coming to save us. Right. Well, that's the best... Okay, that's one of the strongest moments in the movie. I want... Yes, good plot point. Because up until that point in the series... Harry Potter, obviously, he's had a lot of initiative and has gone on adventures and has faced big fears and and foes. But up until that point in the franchise, people or things have always come in to save him. Mm -hmm. Like deus ex machinas. Or luck or chance. Yeah, Yeah. luck or... Yeah, and Sorcerer's Stone, his mother's love saved him from Voldemort going through him. In Chamber of Secrets... Dumbledore sends the phoenix to come and gouge out the eyes of the basilisk. 
Basilisk. Ba- Bahood? Basilisk. Of the ballistic. Um, <laughs> and then he also, Dumbledore, transports the sword and yeah. the hat as well. And in certain points, I guess you could say Hermione kind of helps yeah. Harry oh, Potter yeah. with the time travel aspect. And then Harry Potter's on the hill just waiting, being like, nope, someone's going to come and save us because up until this point, that's what's happened. Yeah. People just come and save me. And he's like, it's probably my father. And then he gets to this point where he's like, oh, crap, no one is coming. It has to be me. Yeah. And that, that that's a true hero. That's a true protagonist. That is a protagonist. great... Yeah, that's a great plot point. Well, and like he didn't even know that's the whole thing that he's like overly explaining to Hermione. He's like, I knew that I could do it now because I saw myself doing it the first time. So it's like that weird time loop, you know what I mean? Like he had never cast a full Patronus before that point. But it was because he had seen himself do it that he right. was able to do it again, sort that, of. Like, so that cool. is so brilliant. That, that's, I think that might have subconsciously influenced my short film because my short film about time travel was all about how this time traveler is trying to see himself come into the room to prove that his machine works. But here's the thing. He never tests the machine because he never sees himself. But you can never see yourself unless you test the machine. It's a, a paradox, right? Mm-hmm. And then from the, from that paradox, there's another plot that happens. But the, the main core thing of not knowing you can do something until you see yourself doing it in the future, I guess. Ish, yeah. Is the most compelling. We could talk about this for hours. Making, totally. Like diagrams of like, okay, if they're... Harry Potter A is at this point, and Harry Potter B, which is future Harry Potter, is in this point, and gives Harry Potter A this thing at this time. And yeah, the the whole loop of it, yeah. so compelling. I loved how the movie really was able to pull it off. Something else the movie is able to pull off is that the movie climaxes with the reveal of Peter Pettigrew. And then that scene ends, and the movie continued. There's like 20 more minutes of movie. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of like, oh, wow, we still have more to go. Like, what more could happen? And then you're like, oh, a whole other story could happen. This movie essentially has four acts, which can be detrimental to your story. You can lose focus if you don't have that, you know, kind of that standard three-act structure. But this movie is able to pull it off pretty well. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Yeah, this is a pretty fast-moving movie. The only thing that I I almost wish was a little shorter was the time loop. I... I just felt a little fatigued. I know you didn't feel like this, yeah, but no. by the time they go through the second story, I don't, maybe I've just seen the movie too often. And so I'm just so familiar with the beats that I'm like, oh my gosh, we got to do the time loop again. But so that dragged for me a little bit. But overall, I mean, great. The whole thing about saving Buckbeak to save Sirius, like it's just yeah. a great story. Because saving Buckbeak on its own is not enough reason to... Go back, go back in, in time, time. Yeah. right. Buck be great little animal character, but like yeah. who really cares if yeah. it doesn't lead to something else? Right. So, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking of the first time Harry rides Buckbeak, and that's another thing, like, this is so insane to me that, like, Hagrid just, like, in the book and the movie, he just, like, puts Harry on the back of this, like, like massively oh, dangerous creature. <laughs> you go, Harry. <laughs> Like Harry, Harry's like, just like, oh, this is a kind of like a horror. Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> and then like orgasms on his back. Should we keep that in there? Yeah, no. we're keeping it all in. <laughs> it's like that. That anyway. Um, 
So yeah, it's just like funny that that like Harry could like very easily die on the back of this creature, but Hagrid's like, bye, like see ya, ride this with like no harness. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this franchise is all about putting kids in danger. I mean, the Tri Wizard Tournament in the next movie, right? That's about as dangerous as you can get. So much so that. Uh, someone dies. Does die. <laughs> you know what? Another thing I've always thought was funny. I love Quidditch. I don't know how the author came up with the game Quidditch because that is like an airtight game for me. That's ins- that's insane to come up with a literal new, completely new sport. It's one of the most popular club sports right. in college history. Yeah, insane. Like that. To, I don't know. That's insanely mind-blowing. But this is what's funny to me. So Harry falls off his broom in this book because Dementors enter the arena, right? And when he's falling from his broom, Dumbledore has to cast a cushioning spell <laughs> on the bottom of the of the Quidditch field because they just, because they, just no, no, because they, because they don't have a safety net right. for well, these kids when they fall. And even in fact, in the second Harry Potter, Wood falls off his broom and literally like breaks his body. <laughs> he yeah. just is like knocked off a broom by a bludger and literally like face plants in the sand. Like nobody casts a cushioning spell for wood. <laughs> well, we don't see like, yeah. And people just fall off. And yeah. in, in this movie, they never mention the character by name, but it's supposed to be Cedric Diggory who gets shot by lightning because he's yeah. the seeker for the Hufflepuff right. team. Uh, you know, he was recast as uh, Robert Pattinson in the next movie. But yeah, he gets electrocuted. And it's like, what happened to him? Yeah, I he know, just right? Got shot by well, lightning. it's just it's just so funny that they treat these kids. But again, like in my head now as an adult, when I'm like rereading these, I know it's so stupid, but it's like, do they just have sort of a lessened reaction or understanding of pain and broken bodies because it's just easier <laughs> to yeah. deal with with magic. I don't know. Like, why don't they have a cushioning spell consistently cast on the bottom of the Quidditch field? Yeah, I'll say this. The school <laughs> is so dangerous that they have a whole hospital wing just <laughs> yeah. dedicated to kids. Br- Magical maladies. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just like a like a, a grade school nurse, right, that gives you a band-aid for a headache. Like, Madame Pomfrey is like, a doctor. (laughs) She regrows bones. She like, (laughs) yeah, it's pretty funny. I don't know. It's just like, well, uh, Petiphany Petunia broke her spine yesterday (laughs) because she walked down the wrong hallway. So well, because the moving staircases moved while she was on it and just like yeeted her off the staircase. Oh, geez. One of the headless horseman ghosts just stabbed our cafeteria lady in the heart. We got it. Exactly. Exactly. Though. I don't know. It's one of those things where you're thinking about the practicalities of magic. You're like, okay. Yeah. And for the next movie, as much as I love the Triwizard Tournament, you got to admit, it's like, okay, how, how do people watch this and how do, how can you, the liability, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the forms you got to fill out. Right. It's like to... Hunger Games, but not right. like, like they're, they're technically, they're like discouraged from killing each other in the final tournament. But if it happens, like they've seen it before. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> okay, extra ratings. That's good. Yeah. But the thing, well, while we're on the subject of liability, uh, Dumbledore hiring a werewolf for his staff. Well, well, this goes goes back to our whole message of inclusivity and being understanding of all people. 
obviously it's a metaphor for people having disabilities and or just different races or ethnicities too. Or learning abilities. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, you can apply it to anything, which is why Lupin is such a great character because it's kind of a universal relatability. Yeah, and you know what? We we touched on this a little bit, but the relationship between Lupin, Sirius, and Snape is also very complex. And yeah. obviously we know another character who Harry judges up until the end of the seventh book is Severus Snape. Yeah. And the complexity of that character, I know that he's become sort of a sex symbol for nerds. Yeah. And honestly, I get it. The way he walks into his classroom in this movie and shuts all the... No, I get it. <laughs> like, honestly, like, rewatching these movies with Alan Rickman, I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> like, hello, Lily Potter, you made the wrong call. <laughs> I mean, just kidding. Like, he is kind of a little bit evil. Like, he treats Harry like a piece of shit. <laughs> like, yeah. But it's understandable. But I like, do his... like the, the little detail in both the book and the movie that Harry's dad... He yeah, was, he wasn't a full blown bully, but he, he kind of was though. Like he kind of was. At, 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 yeah, at, at certain points. Yeah, as, I guess with Snape. Yeah, with sure. Snape, he's literally he's an aggressive bully. Like he th remember the whole thing about the Shrieking Shack yeah. that was built for Lupin to undergo his transformation and to keep him safe away from other kids, but they literally lured Snape into that shack when they were kids to see what would happen. Like, that's insane. That is incredibly dangerous and mean for underage wizards to do that to another student. Right. And the only reason he didn't have that happen is because, actually, well, I guess it was Harry's dad who sort of started to feel bad and, and yeah. put an end to it. But still, like, they were mean. Like, they, they were mean to Snape. And I understand why he still harbors a lot of resentment toward Harry. Yeah. yeah like... <laughs> Right, yeah. It, it would have been easy to write this character who is just a noble dad who tragically yeah. died defending his son. But no, they add some complexity about how he was a bully who learned from his ways and tried to make amends with Snape, but by the time it was too late. Yeah, I love the complex background that those older characters get because not only do you see that Harry's dad was probably a bully during grade, I don't know, seven through 10 or what, you know, whenever they're at Hogwarts, he does start to grow out of it. But conversely, we see that Snape has always been a very neglected child. And unfortunately, that caused him to find solace in the students who were associated with the darker arts. And then, you know, later in the book series, we found out that Lily Evans didn't want Snape to hang out with some of his darker friends because she was like, you aren't acting like the person I was friends with. And so it's like a natural pulling away, which is so heartbreaking because, of course, Snape just always loved Lily. So, yeah. But anyway, it's just a very complex storyline and it it makes a lot of sense why Snape continues to harbor resentment toward Lupin and Sirius. He is so <laughs> funny in this movie. Yeah, R.I.P. Alan Rickman. Oh my god. R.I.P. Gone I, too soon. I, I think he's my favorite character in the franchise. That's a very popular take. But yeah, yeah he, he might be. He, every mannerism, every time he turns or, yeah. or moves his hand, it's funny. Yeah, his like, the way that he handles his hands, which is a 
weird thing to say, but he moves his fingers in this sort of opening and closing way. Like when he's using his, when he, like you're saying, moving his cloak, using his wand. Pointing. Pointing. Like everything he does is so thought out. He is an incredible actor on top of this just being an incredible character. What was the line from this movie? Turn to page 394. Yeah. It says like three times. (laughs) Yeah, I, but I think the funniest part in the entire franchise is the dueling match in Chamber of Secrets in the movie mm-hmm. when he uh, oh my god he points to against Lockhart. Well, that part's funny too when he just yeah <laughs> throws Lockhart out of the ring. But then when Harry Potter is up on the stand and then he turns around quickly to point at Draco, you can't. This is a podcast. You can't see what I'm doing, but he points and then with his thumb he points behind his back to like go and it just something simple like that adds so much demand like that's not on the page like mm-hmm. that's all alan rickman yeah one of the best cases of casting for any fantasy character now of course we got to talk about dumbledore the casting of <laughs> i feel like this is the case for many diehard harry potter fans i know this is the case for you yeah i really like michael gambin's dumbledore and for the record i liked richard harris's dumbledore he, he was the perfect Dumbledore for those first two movies because those were like kids movies full of whimsy. And although they were still dark, they were very much kids movies. Yeah. Whereas Azkaban, it's the shepherd into the more adult or teen mm-hmm. uh, era yeah. of movies. I think, listen, it's not the Dumbledore on the page. Let's get that right out of the way. Let's get that straight yeah, let's get that straight. Wow, season <laughs> Gordon Ramsay. Sorry, that's <laughs> inside. We, we should. We really need to shy away from inside jokes on this podcast because literally <laughs> no one knows what we're talking about. So, anyways, it's not the Dumbledore that's on the page, right? Michael yeah. Gambon's take, especially in my favorite Harry Potter movie, Goblet of Fire. There is that infamous scene where he reprimands Harry for putting his name. In, Did you put the, your name in the Goblet of Fire, Harry? Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? We're in the book. I think. It straight up says Dumbledore calmly asked yeah. Harry, and for whatever reason, director Mike Newell made the decision to have Michael Gambon yell at Harry. Yeah, for... he literally obviously knows Harry didn't do it. Like yeah. he he knows. I don't yeah, know what right. that was for. The, yeah, it's... there's no motivation that I can see for that. Yeah, outburst. even though it's in my favorite movie, probably the worst <laughs> moment in the franchise. Yeah. Anyways, I still like his Dumbledore just because he's more serious, and the movies become more serious. Yeah, I, I just I think I think he's cool. And he's like a youthful, more youthful Dumbledore, and he kind of has a, a sass, a pizzazz to him. Yeah. And he's hilarious in the scene when he's stalling the executioner and Cornelius Fudge. He's like, oh, look over here. Look at the view. Oh, actually, could you put on some tea? And yeah. it, it's funny to just it, overhear. Yeah, I'll give you that. So I like his Dumbledore a lot. But I understand, I completely understand that diehard fans have a problem with him. I don't know if you wanted to extrapolate on that. You know, it's not an unpopular opinion that I hold. Not to diminish the hashtag not my president, (laughs) because that's how I felt from 2016 to 2020. Yeah. But I've always considered hashtag not my Dumbledore (laughs) as my truth. For the Harry Potter movies, because my thing with Dumbledore, and this absolutely extends to my issues with the follow-up Fantastic Beasts movies, which are just garbage. Yeah. I guess for me, it's upsetting that Dumbledore is such a defined character, and he's such a 
standout wizard from anybody we meet in the books. Like, Dumbledore is his own person. Like, there is nobody like Dumbledore. He's consistently described as the most accomplished wizard of his age. He's almost a wizard philosopher. Like, he has so much wisdom and he has so much pain in his backstory that every single thing that he says and does for Harry leading up to his death, which is, again, another incredible plot sequence that he plans that with Snape and how that unfolds, you just feel that through Richard Harris's performance. You feel how old Dumbledore is, but you also know that it's not necessarily his age that makes him act that way. It's his wisdom. Yeah. And that's how I've always read Dumbledore. The intensity that Michael Gambon brings to the character, I just feel like that's younger Dumbledore plotting with Grindelwald. Mm. Like that intensity has been lost in him because he learned that that gets you to a dark place. And so I just can't see that Dumbledore would bring that energy to match Grindelwald slash Voldemort's energy. I don't know. I just like have such a, every time I I hear his voice, I'm just like, that's not who Dumbledore is as a character. We've talked about this before, but when you have such an image in your head of a certain character and then you see that character on screen yeah, and then there's a character change, in this instance, it was a whole new actor. Right. Well, it it was because Richard Harris died and it's just like, oh, what if? To me, that's that's another like feeling of loss is like, what if he had been able to finish the series? It kind of, listen, it it is, he was gone, I think he was 77 when he died. Wow, that doesn't even seem that old. Right. Uh, Part of me was thinking that the producer's should have hired someone a little bit younger if they're gonna, you know, make... <laughs> no, well, no, you know, see what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I know, that, but these are kind of the conversations you need to have, like, if you're building a franchise. But at the same time, I'm not being ageist here, but they, they, they can't predict the future. They didn't know Richard Harris was gonna die so young. But I think they went in such a pivot with Michael Gammon, who was like 50 when he mm. came on, and they're like, oh, wow, young, young, hot <laughs> Speaking of older people that they hired in this franchise, we would be remiss if we didn't mention Maggie Smith. I mean, Silent just e- as well cast as Severus. Yeah. Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall is that character. Like, she is McGonagall. Potter. <laughs> Potter. <laughs> Chamber. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't get a lot to do in this movie, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. She's kind of a big presence in the first two movies. Well, she turns down Harry's request for a guardian oh, signature to go into that. Hogsmeade. R- ridiculous how they would turn down. They know that Harry is an orphan yeah. whose guardians <laughs> are these abusive aunt and uncle, yeah. and it's insane. Why wouldn't they yeah. just make an exception? Right, You know what's really stupid, actually? This is something that I appreciated in the movie. This is a very tiny detail, but when you've read this book a million times, these things stick out to you. The first time that the class is allowed to go to Hogsmeade and Harry can't, and he runs into Fred and George and they say, oh, here's this, this secret tunnel that'll take you into Honeydukes. Harry doesn't wear his invisibility cloak when he sneaks into Hogsmeade the first time in the book. Yeah. And I'm like, why? What? Yeah. <laughs> that is the stupid. 
everybody knows A, who you are, and B, you're not allowed to go in. Why would you not wear your invincibility clothes? That is the stupidest thing. And And in the the movie, they rectify that. That's what I was going to say, is that he obviously wears... Oh, and are you going to mention the thing that he he does when he comes out of the Honeydukes, too? He steals Neville Longbottom's blood pop. Oh, in the movie. In the movie. Why would he do that? That was weird in the movie, too. He just, like, steals Neville's lollipop and walks away and then, like, doesn't give it back. Yeah. Well, the book contains one of my least favorite devices for delivering exposition, which is characters overhearing other characters. Oh my god. I, and they, yeah. I Ugh, hate that so in, bad. in books and movies, especially in movies, when a character will be just around the corner and they'll yeah. be listening in. I'm like, why would they be talking that loud? And, and they over-explain yeah. what they're talking. Oh, yeah. like Harry doesn't know who his parents are. The movie rectifies that by having Harry have the invisibility cloak and then he walks into a private room right. that where the people don't know that Harry's in there and he overhears a private conversation. Right. Because it makes sense that not everyone would know Harry Potter's godfather. Yeah. It makes sense that not everyone would know who the secret keeper was at mm-hmm. the time when the Potters needed protection. So that conversation does make sense. But like you said, in the book, it takes place in the middle of a pub. Yeah. Why would they be having that specific conversation at that time? It's very coincidental that Harry, mm-hmm. Ron, and Hermione are just sitting in the bar. Harry comes in no invisibility cloak, just sitting out in the open. And so, yeah, like you said, the movie rectifies that by having them have that conversation in a private room. Harry has his invisibility cloak. It makes a lot more sense, so. Well, you had mentioned at the start of that whole scene the of a little detail, and I wanted to pivot more back to the movie about what makes this movie so special are the little details that Quran and his crew add to the story. So they just make this movie so special. A detail I like is the foreshadowing of the Marauder's map is when Harry first puts on the cloak, the camera is floating in the air and then it pivots and you see footsteps in the snow walking towards. And then the next scene, they show the Marauder's map and just like the footsteps in the snow, you see little footsteps floating on the map. And it's such a subconsciously your brain makes that link between the two two images and you can figure out what's going on right just from... even just like the heel is separate from the toe area yeah. of the shoe like yeah another thing that Quran does about four times throughout the movie is kind of move the camera through glass yeah glass and i guess clocks are a big theme a motif in yeah. the movie because glass signifies you're looking through the characters are looking at themselves via time travel but they're also looking within themselves. And other people, right, between Lupin and Sirius. Right, so this, again, visual storytelling to kind of subconsciously inform your brain as to what's going on. And I like how, yes, you could say that Peter Pettigrew is the big bad of this story, but really the villains of the story are fear and time. Because Harry is afraid of Sirius Black. He's afraid of getting murdered throughout the whole story. And fear also plays a big part into him standing up to the Dementors. Yep. I mean, th- that it all comes back Well, like, back to the, the Dementor, end. like Lupin explains, Dementors are fear. Right. That's what they feed on. Yeah, exactly. So, like, when the bug art takes the form of Harry's biggest fear, and it's a de- it's a Dementor, that's why Lupin is like, oh, you're very smart, Harry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, the only, basically, which goes unsaid, it's like, the only thing you fear is fear itself. <laughs> right. And that's why the book and the movie are so compelling, even though I think the book 
spends too much time with them chilling out in Hogwarts. From the start, there are two main threats that consider throughout the whole book that are always in the back of your mind, the Dementors and Sirius Black. Obviously, if you've seen the movie, you know that Sirius Black is a fake out. He's not really evil. But the whole time when you watch it the first or read it the first time, there's always that threat. So that's why you're always on edge throughout the whole movie, because you know at any point he could, Harry could come in contact with a Dementor. Sirius Black could kill him. Um, and that's actually, he. it also manifests, that fear manifests in the Grim too. Right. That consistent black dog imagery that comes up with Professor Trelawney, who, by the way, is also incredibly cast. Yeah. She's so funny. That's Emma Thompson mm -hmm. uh, with her big glasses and her so crazy hair. So funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, you have the threat of Lupin, who at any point, if he doesn't take his medication or his spells or whatever. Potion. Potion, sorry. Um, <laughs> he could become a werewolf. So that's kind of the beauty of the movie. Is there's It's always tense, even when, you know, there are scenes of humor and mm -hmm. it's funny. There's always a threat, which is, as a storyteller, if you're making a thriller, you kind of always want to engage your audience or else you're failing at your job. And <laughs> Quran does that pretty well. And and on top of just those subtle clues that inform you of what you're supposed to think, it's just it's just a well-made movie. We've said this a million times, but Quran is known for his long takes. And there are a few scenes in this movie that don't have to be long takes, but he does it anyways to mm -hmm. try to to make the scenes uh, flow more or to, you know, increase the tension. I'm the most impressive one is right at the beginning when Mr. Weasley is talking to Harry and he reveals that Sirius Black has escaped prison and is there to kill Harry. Yeah. They start at the the big table the Leaky Cauldron and then Mr. Weasley takes him to the side and there's these pillars and it, this whole scene is about 2 minutes. It's crazy. There's no cut and throughout the scene, they slowly move closer and closer to the camera until Mr. Weasley is completely shrouded in darkness and just focused on Harry. And that's when the realization kicks in. Oh, crap. There's someone here to kill me. Yeah. And I think even in that shot, Sirius Black is in his wanted poster on right. one of the columns screaming, which is also one of those sort of classic Harry Potter images. And that's just a beautifully framed shot. And not only that. Actually, I wanted to add too, it's so fun to just watch the magic happening in the background because everybody is serving themselves through magic at the dining table. So like people are getting, you know, there's a kettle floating through the air and people are getting their tea and the kettle's pouring itself and stuff like It's yeah. just fun to watch that stuff in the background, but it's not distracting. Mm -hmm. It's fun to watch when you've seen this movie a million times yeah. and you can watch the background for little things like that, but it's just fun. Yeah, Quran is the master of mise-en-scene. Right. Which basically means stuff going on in yeah. the frame. Yeah. It's everything is so engaging. The camera work is amazing. Editing is great. Something that Quran wanted to do was to shoot on location. Mm. So the first two movies were the exteriors were shot in Scotland, but most of it was on sound stages. Quran decided to do as little sound stages as possible. I mean, you still got to do some studio work in here, mm. but he they went for the majority of the shoot in Scotland. He added more to the layout of Hogwarts. Right, you can tell that. But Hagrid's hut yeah. is in a completely different Yeah, it's at the layout. bottom of a hill and yeah. there's stairs and these kind of these stone heads. It's very dramatic. Yeah, yeah I love it. 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 He, so Quran expands on the campus. The effects are better. Not great, I should say, on the uh, 
the werewolf at points. It doesn't you look can good. Tell, yeah, it, it's, it's not just, rendered. It just straight up doesn't yeah. look good. But well, can I add something? Yeah. So something that the books do very consistently is show time changing through the seasons. Yes. And I think the author does this because they're at school. Mm-hmm. And so it's really easy to tell that the books are, I'm gonna say without fail, every single book begins in the fall, right before the term starts. You move through the fall into the holidays. You move from the holidays to exams and spring, and then you move into the summer, which ends the books. That's how they're all structured. And as far as I'm concerned, Alfonso Cuaron is the only director who visually shows you that time changing with the seasons. There's one season change in particular between the fall and the winter winter where he sort of pan does a pan shot of hogwarts and then out of the corner of the left screen you see hedwig move into the center of the screen flying past hogwarts and then suddenly the camera pans to the right side of the screen and you almost lose hedwig in this snowy wonderland yeah that is a beautiful shot. And another way that he incorporates humor into that transition is when, I think it's between winter and spring, but the... It shakes the snow off. Whomping Willow. Yeah. yeah. You see there's sort of Hogwarts is in the background and the Whomping Willow is in the foreground, which is kind of foreshadowing that that's where the movie's going to climax. But the Whomping Willow just sort of like, there's a breeze and one leaf falls off the Whomping Willow and kind of do-do-do-do-do, falls to the ground, like Forrest Gump. And then the tree sort of like shakes and shivers and like gets all of the dead leaves off. And then the camera pans and you see these like new buds at the bottom of the tree. And like, that's that's really a great way of showing how time is moving throughout. Because it's so important. Like time is so important to the plot. Right. Every season has this little vignette with the Whomping Willow. To yeah, kind of, yeah, well said. Show it. Yeah, yeah. The Whomping Willow loved what they did with that. Yeah, Quran is the master. He would go on to make Children of Men after this movie. Quite, <laughs> quite the pivot. I haven't seen <laughs> but it. But Children of Men, one of my favorite movies ever. Uh, not just sci-fi or dystopian sci-fi. Love Children of Men. He also directed Roma, which. We love the technical precision of that movie. We loved it when it came out. We don't really have a desire to watch it again. I don't mean to speak for you, but yeah, Yeah. Quran's great. Yeah, he wanted to direct the next one, but he spent so much time in pre-production and production for this movie that, so basically they would make a Harry Potter movie every year and a half. So as they were filming Azkaban, they were already getting Goblet of Fire ready, Mm -hmm. and Quran simply couldn't make the time commitment. Yeah. He basically would be shooting for four years straight if he was to do both movies three years i guess but still so that's why the first two movies were done by christopher columbus he wanted to do the third but he couldn't make the time commitment he wanted to spend more time with his family his kids so they got this really indie mexican director who had made a couple films before this like this really scandalous road trip movie about these three people, two teenagers and a older woman, like having a, a sexual adventure. Huh. It's like really weird that they picked Alfonso Cuaron for this, but it... Well done. Well done. Yeah. Uh, so, amazing movie. This is a super tiny detail. The third book is where you find out when Ron replaces his broken wand from book two. I love that that was explained. Yeah. <laughs> because his dad wins the lottery 
at work, and so they have enough money to replace his wand. I just think that's like a little fun detail. How would you rank the Harry Potter franchise? Okay, so I rank the movies and the books completely differently. So if, do you want me to just go with movie for now? Yeah, sure. Okay. Because I haven't read all the books, I should say. I only read up to Goblet. So. Yeah. I don't know how we're getting married, but yeah. <laughs> it's happening. Okay, so to rank the movies from least to most favorite, I have Order of the Phoenix, and then Half-Blood Prince, and then parts one and two of Deathly Hallows. I, I'm not as familiar with the last three movies because I don't watch them. I don't really like them very much. So they all kind of blend together. And then and then next I would say Goblet of Fire and then Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban. Wow. Chamber of Secrets second? Yeah. The movies are on such a spectrum for me because yeah. the last three I just don't feel emotionally excited by like I do with the books. I because say... the I, we're at the same mind. The, the last four for me, I don't feel yeah. much for. I think David Yates, who directed the last four, I don't. I think he was the wrong choice. I don't yeah. think they're. They're great just movies. not. They're like muddy. Whenever I think about the movies and the images, I just feel like I remember like a lot of dark imagery and it's like very shadowy. And and, and people love <laughs> Deathly Hallows Part Two, and so we, I think we both have hot takes where we're not too keen on. Yeah, I past two films. I yeah. just feel like a lot of the like something I like about the books is that they're consistently funny and charming. But by the fourth movie, which I don't mind, I don't mind the fourth, and I you know I like Cedric Diggory. I like that whole story. I think it's Cedric's death is really intense because it's one of those things where like in movies someone's gonna die, but then someone like doesn't pull the trigger soon yeah. enough, and you know. But like Cedric, basically like seconds pass between. Voldemort saying kill him and he dies. Yeah. So I think that's such a shocking death. But aside from that, like there's still a lot of funness about the yeah. fourth movie. Like it's, it's still magical. <laughs> yeah, it's like fun. But then by the time we get to movie five, six, and seven, there's just that magical, charming element that just goes missing. So yeah. Movies one and two for me are very nostalgic. Like I said, I, the first movie I ever saw in the theaters was the first Harry Potter movie. So just the charm and the theme and the kids, like how young those kids look and Harry Potter, Ron and Hermione and Ginny mm -hmm. and Fred and George. I mean, th it's just so fun. And I just wish that the last four movies had that. We have similar lists. So my least favorite is, is Deathly Hallows Part 1. I think there's just, not, I mean, it's half a story. I think it was smart to split the last book into two movies. Well, maybe not because the part one is not engaging Honestly, at I don't all. even remember it's not what fun. happens in part one and part two. They I don't know. They hang out and tense a bunch. So yeah, Deathly Hallows part mm. one, my least favorite. Then after that is Order of the Phoenix. I think that movie has a good fight between Dumbledore and Voldemort. That's yeah, that's about fun. It. Yeah. Then after that is the Half-Blood Prince. I guess a well-made movie, but very boring. Yeah. <laughs> After that, Deathly Hallows Part 2. I thought the final fight between Harry and Voldemort a little anticlimactic, honestly. Yeah. Now we're getting to the good territory. Now, uh, after that, Sorcerer's Stone. Philosopher's Stone, I guess. Yeah. Then Chamber of Secrets. Nostalgia glasses there. Then yeah. Azkaban. Then Goblet. Yeah. Yeah. The first four I could watch anytime. Yeah. I love them. It's just the first two for me are yeah. just 
reminiscent of my childhood. Yeah, I mean, that like, that's what I wanted. I wanted a letter from Hogwarts. Like, I made a paper owl for myself that I had, like, I could, like, feed pellets and stuff. Like, those are the things that I just made my childhood magical. For years, I convinced myself that I was a cool badass who would be in Slytherin. Guys, (laughs) I took the Podmore quiz eight times. I changed up my answers here and there. Every single time, I got Hufflepuff. I'm a Hufflepuff, okay? I've taken BuzzFeed quizzes every single time. Hufflepuff. It's crazy how the houses are Gryffindor, Ravenclaw, Slytherin. Okay, three of the coolest names ever. Like Slytherin, Ravenclaw, Gryffindor. And then you have Hufflepuff. They might as well be called the tummy ticklers. You know, like Hufflepuff? Are you kidding me? Well, it's interesting. We, I don't know if we have time to touch on the personality (laughs) traits of, I will say that I was sorted by the sorting hat that was used in the movies. And I got into Gryffindor, but I'm pretty sure that it was like, pre-programmed yeah, to have no, everybody you are oh, yeah, i did that uh, I, at, at the warner brothers lot yeah yeah i, did I think that I am a Ravenclaw because I think that as much as I can be brave, I put my blinders on when it comes to my way of thinking because I think that my rationale is smarter than everyone else's rationale. And I I still struggle with thinking that Hermione is in Gryffindor sometimes no, because Herm- like... Hermione would be in Ravenclaw. Everyone knows it. Yeah. And like, you are Hermione, so you're Ravenclaw. Yeah. She's so stubborn. I have issues with the way that the houses are sort of formatted you know like there's clearly issues with with stuff like that um just expel everyone in slytherin yeah, um, <laughs> yeah but exactly. i'm a hufflepuff because i value hard work dedication patience loyalty and fair play when i think of you i always think of you as like the caregiver like you're always like the bartender who's making drinks you're always the person who's like bringing people gifts and bringing like the jokes and the fun i'm and, a like... pushover i'm, I'm a <laughs> no that's not what i said at <laughs> yep. all that's not what i said but like i'm always the person who's honestly like we'll be having a good time and then i start thinking about something and then i shut the mood down actually it's not inviting the song yes like i literally say stuff like that and i i know how gryffindors are like supposed to be better balanced and whatever but like i'm not a balanced person yeah gryffindors are the cool kids for sure i know like i've learned over time that slytherin are just just the bad kids (laughs) not bad as in cool bad anyways we've gone off track what would you rate the book in the movie you know i have blinders on when it comes to harry potter even with she who must not be named being the ass, the gaping asshole that she is. So I'm going to give this book a four out of four because I'm never going to stop reading it. I'm so excited to introduce our kids to Harry Potter. Like, uh-huh. so yeah, four to four. Uh, movie, I don't, I'm going to just say three out of, three and a half out of four just because I felt a little fatigued by the end, but I'm not sure that's fair just because I've seen the movie so many times. Yeah. I think it's just one of those things where it's yeah. like, oh, I just have to watch that time loop twice. So mm-hmm. sure. that's just a personal thing, yeah. but it's a fun movie. Yep. The book is a three out of four for me. Like I said, it's kind of a hangout book and there's a lull in the middle yeah. for me. It still is fun. I love reading about the Quidditch tournament. Yeah. And, I, and Hogsmeade, this is the first time we kind of yeah. go into Hogsmeade. Like that's magical. Yeah. I love that. The book is a four out of four. It's a, I should say it's a high three because this time around the acting wasn't that great in parts yeah that's true which was disappointing but i don't do quarters with stars so this would be movie would be a 3.75 but i don't do that so three and a half or four rounded up this movie's a four i was just thinking of that line when hermione punches malfoy and she's like that 
felt good. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a bad line. I'm sorry, Emma Watson. I'm sure you're such a great person. Yeah, great person, but you're a zero <laughs> for three, at least in our podcast. Yeah. Uh, on our performances. So, all right. Well, thank you for listening. This has been the first half of season four. We're going to take a little bit of a break because we need to prepare for the second half. Coming up, we have The Prestige, but we also have our three-part episode on Watchmen. That's right, the graphic novel Watchmen. We're going to talk about the movie. We're also going to talk about the show. And so we need to have a a little bit of a break just to prepare for that. But we hope you've enjoyed the first half of season four. We'll see you maybe in a couple weeks for the next half. And just as a tag, I'm going to go out there on a limb and say Ron is a wizard nationalist. Hit me up if you agree. And I'll have a long conversation about it. (laughs) I just wanted to like throw that in here that Ron is is worse than Voldemort. (laughs) Hit me up if you want to have a conversation about it because I have a whole theory developed. What a way to end. (laughs) <laughs> Ron's a piece of shit and Hermione never should have married him. They would be divorced IRL. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Thank you for listening and we'll see you in a couple weeks. All right, peace.